Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, co-hosting with WFIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. This week, we're talking about President Joe Biden's first 100 days in office. That will be marked next week. We have four or three guests. I'm sorry. We have three guests with us in, uh, today on the show. We have Marjorie Hershey, Professor Emerita at IU in the Department of Political Science. Paul Helmke is, the is an O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs Professor of Practice, and he's also the director of the Civic Leaders Center. Both Marjorie and Paul have been uh, frequent guests on our show, and we have a, a new guest, first-time guest today, Bill Rogers III, who is a, a, the, uh, at Rutgers University in the Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy. He's a professor. He's also chief economist with the Heldrick Center for Workforce Development. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. So Margie, it's good to have you back. Paul, it's good to have you back. And Bill, it's great to have you with us for the first time. Margie, I want to start with you to talk about uh, President Biden's first 100 days. It's been uh, certainly a change from what we had, the, the administrations are de definitely um, different, let's just say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, the two most important things that the Biden administration has done are first, giving the federal government a much more active role in dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. For instance, by giving states the much needed ability to predict how much vaccine they're gonna receive and when it's gonna arrive during the Trump administration, it was anybody's guess, which made it hard for states to plan their own vaccination programs. And that resulted in a huge increase in the speed of our vaccination efforts, which is critical for public health because the slower the vaccines are administered, the greater the chance that the virus is gonna develop variants that won't be covered by the vaccine. And second, the creation and the passage by Congress in a remarkable speedy activity by Congress of the American Rescue Plan, a 1.9 trillion piece of legislation, very far reaching, ranging from immediate cash payments to lower income people to additional unemployment payments, $350 billion in aid to state and local governments to help them deal with expenses from the pandemic, which were threatening to break a lot of them. More money for the Paycheck Protection Program for Small Business, money for veterans health care, emergency rental assistance, disaster relief, energy assistance money for low-income households, all of these to stimulate the economy as well as to help people cope with the, the costs of the pandemic. There's other legislation in the pipeline, the most important of which deal with voting rights and infrastructure. And then there have been dozens of executive orders issued by the president, stopping funding for the border wall, ending the travel bans on Muslims and others, increasing the supply of vaccine, the mask mandate on federal property, rejoining the Paris Climate Treaty. Pretty big list. Um, President Trump also had a pretty impactful first 100 days, though they were remarkably different in content from Biden's. Trump's executive orders were mainly aimed at undoing President Obama's executive orders, and President Biden's have been aimed at undoing those of President Trump. But Biden has had some advantages early in his administration that his predecessors did not have. 
President Obama spent a whole lot of his first year trying to produce bipartisan legislation, which was a noble goal, but the Senate Republicans had already determined to vote against anything Obama proposed, so it turned out to be a fair amount of wasted time. And Donald Trump came into office without many appointees who had previous experience in a federal administration. Biden, on the other hand, appointed a lot of people to important jobs who had already served in the Obama administration. So they knew a lot about the agencies they were heading and have been much better able to get things done in them. Paul, I want to turn to you and, uh, you know, how does this first hundred days, um, how does this sort of shake out for you? And can you give us the significance of a hundred days. It seems like we always talk about that with a new president. Yeah, it, uh, I always think it's uh, interesting that we focus on on a hundred day uh, uh, type mark, and uh, uh, I mean a lot of it in, in American political history goes back to Franklin Roosevelt and uh, and all the things that uh, that he pushed for and tried to accomplish in the first hundred days uh, of his administration back in March and April May of uh, 1933. Uh, sometimes people uh, talk about the hundred days as referring to when Napoleon uh, returned to uh, to France after exile before he got uh, defeated at Waterloo. So I'm not sure that's the best hundred day comparison. But it's it always strikes me as a little strange. It, it's a uh, a lot of it is symbolic. A lot of it uh, could be posturing. Uh, it, it, this has been a very significant hundred days um, because the Democrats. Uh, control not only the White House, but also the House, uh, just barely, and the Senate uh, uh, even more narrowly on a 50-50 on a uh, thing. And I, I think sometimes I, I try to point out uh, for people who are frustrated that uh, you know, this is something that could easily uh, be different. If, if the Georgia uh, races had not gone the way they had, uh, uh, you wouldn't have uh, any Democrat, uh, any Democratic measures uh, uh, getting through the Senate. If, um, if, if there were an, an illness or, or you know, a, a, a tragic uh, a death uh, by one of the Democrats, uh, you'd have a, a situation too. I think you know, it, near, near the start of Biden's term, we saw Senator Leahy from Vermont um, hospitalized. And uh, I think folks forget how, how tenuous this, uh, this control is. And I, I think that's one of the reasons there's a focus on, on the 100 days or on, on getting a lot done at the start. You don't know how long that control is gonna be there. Uh, it could easily change with the 2022 elections, uh, but it could change uh, just uh, again if, um, if if someone dies or, or there's a replacement. Same sort of thing happened after Ted Kennedy died, for example, in uh, early in the Obama administration. So it, uh, it it's interesting that we focus on this, but uh, I think it's been one of the most impactful 100-day uh, measures that we've seen. All the all the items that Marjorie mentioned, uh, you know, that 1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan is is really significant. Uh, Indiana legislature just passed uh, the Indiana state budget yesterday, and a lot of it relies on the federal money coming in. It, uh, uh, the, the Indiana budget only had two or three folks voting against it in both the House and the Senate uh, because there's so much money there. And uh, uh, that, that certainly is, is doing a lot for the economy, a lot for um, unemployment, a lot for in, income inequality. So it was significant. One other th two other things just briefly that, uh, that I think are crucial. Um, the, uh, the the president announced uh, the timeline to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, this is uh, a little bit of an extension of what President Trump was pushing for, but I I think uh, the aim to get out of Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary of 9/11 uh, uh, is a significant <clears throat> step and uh, uh, for for the country um, and one that can still be debated. But um, you know clearly that that, that that's a different um, uh, position than. Uh, perhaps we we've had as a country, or it's a final position for the country, re-engaging with um, with other countries on on climate change, like uh, what's going on now, is significant. Uh, uh, trying to uh, reset the relationship with Iran is going to be significant. These these are major changes from before. So uh, America's role in the world appears to be different now than it than it was before. Um, one of my uh, major concerns has always been gun violence prevention. Uh, um, and there, there's only so much a president can do through executive orders, but President Biden has announced uh, he's trying some executive orders to, to deal with gun violence prevention. Uh, he's pushing uh, proposals that have been adopted by the House for, for approval in the Senate. Uh, uh, that, that, that's still going to be tough to, 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 to get in the Senate, but 
I think it's important to have a president who uses the bully pulpit uh, uh, to, to push on these things. Uh, president Obama did not talk about gun violence prevention at all during his uh, first 100 days or even his first term in office hardly. Uh, so to have a, a president bring this up, I think is significant. Last thing I wanna say, and I think this might be one of the most significant things in the last 100 days is just sort of uh, lowered the tone of disagreement in the country. Uh, uh, it's just, you know, it, it, it's when things happen, you know, we, we get more of the traditional, you know, here's a presidential statement, here's a presidential uh, address. Uh, uh, we, we don't run to the Twitter feed every day to see uh, what, what, what the reaction is going to be. It's, it's kind of nice to have boring come back and, uh, and in, in some semblance of, uh, of let's just, uh, you know, let, let's handle the issues. And if we disagree, we disagree, but uh, let, let, let's not have these, uh, these intense fights every day over uh, the significant things or insignificant things. I think sort of lowering the temperature in the room, uh, trying to get everyone to calm down. I, I think that's been one of uh, one of the president's most significant accomplishments. All right, thank you, Paul Helmke from the O'Neill School. Now, Bill Rogers is joining us from uh, Rutgers University and he's in the Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy. And he's also a chief economist with the Heldrick Center for Workforce Development. So what about this first hundred days Bill, and how, how is it going to affect the economy? Yeah, I want to, it's a tough act following uh, my two colleagues here. They did a great job of, uh, of summarizing and going, going pretty deep uh, with regards to, uh, you know, their perspectives on, on what's happening. So I'll, I'll try to uh, probably amplify some of what they've said. And then and I think there are a few, you know, new areas that I can kind of explore. But uh, in my notes for th- preparing for today, at the top of the page in, in uh, uh, bold letters and underlined was the word mood, yeah. mood, M-O-O-D. And uh, this was just, was just shared. Yeah, that's, that's for me, number one, the biggest change um, in this 100 days that, that pri- in the previous administration, it got to a point, you just didn't know what you're gonna wake up to uh, or what tweet you were gonna see uh, that was either abrasive that was uh, uh, maligning or attacking women, attacking uh, minorities, attacking people with disabilities, uh, you know, and 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 that was that was very very problematic. It was it's, it was very very hurtful. Uh, with that said, uh, I do understand that uh, what motivated the, the previous president for, for running was America. Even though we were having this great economy, we were uh, economic economic insecurity. Was uh, was still quite quite rampant throughout the United States. For example, the Federal Reserve, they had a, they were one of their surveys found that prior to the pandemic, that what, about thirty five to thirty eight percent of Americans could not uh, could not afford to uh, cover a four hundred dollar unexpected bill. Uh, the United Way of Northern New Jersey that I do a lot of work with created this concept called Alice, which is basically a concept around living wages. Uh, we have about 35 to 38% of our households that uh, can't, can't afford uh, where they're living, but they, they don't have enough resources. So, so, the, so, the, so the other thing we have to do about this 100 days is we have to really cast, cast it in the context of where we were prior to the pandemic. That economic, yes, we had a great expansion, but economic insecurity was, was uh, still uh, quite a challenge for many, many Americans. And so the attraction for, to this president and towards candidate Sanders was that people have been feeling like they've been bullied. They've been bullied by globalization, immigration and trade, been bullied by uh, technology, and then also feeling like they have to be uh, politically correct because of the changing demographics in our country. So, so, so this president who really understands in his administration really understands that uh, they had to change the mood. They really had to change the mood. Uh, with regards to the 100 days, the 100 days was, was very important in the context of the three R's. What are the three R's? The three R's are relief, recovery, and reimagination. Um, all of the public health officials, Dr. Fauci and others, we're saying that January, February, March were going to be really, really tough, tough months um, because of the winter, and then hence people being inside and potentially being greater at greater risk with regards to the pandemic. And so, uh, that first hundred days was what we do here, we're doing here in New Jersey with our governor. Right? I'm on his his restart commission, and his phrase is: "Public health will create economic health." 
public health will create economic health. And the first 100 days, particularly the $1.9 trillion piece of legislation, uh, that really is all about creating public health, which will then lead to economic health. And, and the Census Pulse Survey that they've been doing since the beginning of the pandemic should be, has begun to show that people's ability to meet their expenditures actually has gotten better in the last few weeks of the survey. And I attribute that largely to this $1.9 trillion. Not all of this is not going out, but the, but the checks, the $1,400 checks have gone out. Unemployment insurance uh, benefits are continuing to be paid. There's a, a, an agreement that they're going to go until September. So it's reducing that uncertainty. It's reducing the fear. And, and as we said earlier, too, there's a great deal of money in that that was also going to provide assistance for states, um, more, more assistance with fighting the pandemic, um, and, and so, you know, it's, and, and, and so what this, this really is all about is it's provides, it's providing those, those, those additional parts of the bridge to recovery, uh, to, to a prosperity, to a shared prosperity, to a, a, a recovery where all Americans will benefit. And the one item that I don't think I heard that was talked about that was in the uh, $1.9 trillion package, and that is the child tax credit. That is the child tax credit. There are estimates that are suggesting that that will have a massive impact on reducing child care, uh, on child child poverty, um, and also it's it's a there's investments in the care economy. Uh, that one this pandemic educated us on so many issues, but one thing it really also helped people understand is the challenge that families face with trying to have dual earners that are both working and having children. Uh, and so uh, the care economy is so important because more than it's more than half of our labor force are women and, and also men now are much more involved in in child care and, and home home and work at home. So that was another really, really important piece that was done in this first 100 days. Our guests have done a great job of framing uh, this discussion. Sorry, sir, I didn't mean to step on you there. But I want to give our uh, our contact information again in case you have a question. You can send it to us at uh, Noon Edition on Twitter. You can also send us questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Sarah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, Bill, I want to ask you a follow-up, a question we just got in from Twitter Um the, the person says, has the U.S. taken too many steps backwards to arrive at a state of unity that existed before 2016? Well, I, I like to think of it as uh, there's the old family oil filter commercial. And I think maybe many of us are old enough to have remember, remember this. And that was where the old the sage mechanic was talking to his client uh, who had his car. And he says, you really need to change your air filter. You really need to change your air filter. And the guy's like, well, you know, him and all. And he says, well, the mechanic says, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's kind of the way I, I think about that question. And, and so I don't think it's too, 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 it's, uh, too late. I think we just have to get back to doing what the United Nations calls, and that's investing in human priorities. What do I mean by human priorities? These are investments in education and training. But most important, these are investments in social capital. And, and it's important to see that in that $1.9 trillion, that is, those are our down payments or, or sort of renewed uh, inv investments in, in human priorities, in the social capital, in communities. Uh, and then this infrastructure package, the American Jobs Plan, uh, that also uh, is a is a, uh, a package that is very focused on investing in human priorities. And why do I focus on this? Well, when I, I've looked at some of this in the, in the past and whenever we slow down our investments in human priorities, where it could feel like, oh my gosh, we, 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 we can't make up for past ground, uh, income inequality, economic insecurity expanded. And, prior, and during the Trump administration, that was happening. We were seeing a third slowdown. And so, so, so these major sort of shifts uh, in investment, in, in people and in communities, I think are going to do the job uh, as long as the money is spent uh, prudently, wisely, you know, it's, it's targeted in the right places that uh, we can really uh, return to a place like we had in the 1990s of a shared prosperity. 
And then I wanted to ask Marjorie and, and Paul, perhaps too, you both mentioned executive orders and I know the number of executive orders varies widely by president and the substance of them as well. But um, it, it seems like, you know, you're saying Biden has gotten a lot accomplished, but how significant is it that it's mostly all been done through executive orders? Well, it's very significant, Sarah. And uh, let me just mention this ties in with the previous questioner's mention of this uh, sense of national unity we had before 2016. Um, I wish I had seen some of that. I think it's been really quite a long time, maybe since 9-11, since we've seen national unity. The only question now is, do you like whatever is happening at the moment or you dislike it? If you like it, I suppose you think it's national unity. But we've had a very divided nation for a very long time and increasingly so. Um, party polarization, ideological polarization. And as a result, um, in addition to the fact that the two parties are really pretty much equal or close to equal in strength at the national level, not at the state, but at the national level. That means that uh, Congress is very closely divided and there just isn't a whole lot of alternative for presidents other than to issue executive orders because they're not gonna get anything through Congress, especially given the problem of the filibuster when uh, a minority in the Senate can totally block action from occurring. So it's not surprising that executive orders have, although they haven't really increased, there were a lot of executive orders issued during the New Deal, but those were mainly procedural and administrative executive orders. The increase has been in substantive executive orders, those that refer specifically to policy change. Yeah. Uh, Margie's covered most of this and so is Bill. I, I, I wanted to, one thing on the on the polarization, uh, and, and I agree, we, we haven't really had a whole lot of unity since, uh, since early and after September 11, but um, I, I think one of the significant things, and Bill touched on this too, with 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 the the comment on mood, is that you know Pre President Biden seems to be wanting to try to appeal to all of America, um, whereas I think President Trump was always more about uh, uh, energizing his base, uh, and you know that that's always been a, a, a sort of an issue for in politics. Do you try to go? For the for everybody, uh, particularly you know, go toward the independents in the middle, or do you try to just uh, basically uh, uh, gin up your base? And uh, I I think this different approach from President Biden does, will be paying off in terms of uh, issues of unity. The yeah, his approval ratings are higher than President Trump's ever were. There was a poll that came out I think just yesterday or today that showed that young people are as optimistic now and, and supportive of what the government's doing as they've been in the last 21 years. Uh, th th those are significant steps, I think, for the long range. And I, I think it's interesting when you try to look at what the Republicans, how they're trying to message uh, President Biden, they're, they're, they're still trying to, you know, they, I, I don't think they know how to attack him. They're, they're, they're trying to say that he's, uh, that he, you know, that, I mean, they're having trouble attacking him. I, I think their their line seems to be that he's really the puppet of, uh, of the socialists, uh, so-called socialists in the party that are just using him as a tool and that they'll either depose him or, 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 or shut him aside as soon as they can. And that there's this secret socialist plot to do all sorts of things that, uh, that, that you know, that's not selling to the American people now. And, uh, and I think Biden's coming across generally as the, the grandfatherly uh, healer in chief uh, that, 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 that's trying to move the country forward. And I think that's gonna pay off. Um, now, after the 20, whether that translates into uh, uh, legislation getting through or not, whether that translates into electoral victories in, in 2022 is a different issue. But for right now, um, I, I think people like it, particularly when there's uh, when there's all this money being spread around. It, uh, it really does help people think more uh, positively about the future. I want to follow up on that with you, Paul, because, you know, as a former 
mayor of a decent sized city, a good sized city, Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, you know, you see this money coming from the federal government. And you mentioned, you alluded to the state legislature um, ending its session yesterday, and there was very little debate on the budget because there was a lot more money to spend, and a lot of it's coming from the federal government. I mean, what what does this um, create in terms of you know the the leaders around the country, people who are elected in state legislatures, people that are elected and as mayors and governors, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, but now all of a sudden they have money to spend from the federal government. Does that? help uh, bridge this divide or is it just going to be a a talking point um, in the next election that well the federal government was spending wildly the i think it's very significant i mean when you when you've got money you can get things done and whether it's a republican uh, mayor or governor or democratic mayor or governor um, it gives you a chance to do a lot of things in your community and uh I, I, I think it's it's going to be a major um, um, you know a major hit, uh, uh, accomplishment of, for the Biden administration. The the one challenge they have, and and I I know they're aware of this, is is um, letting folks know where the money's coming from. Uh, you know, one of the criticisms uh, of of the Obama administration's uh, efforts after the uh, Great Recession were that people didn't realize where the money was coming from, what the federal government was doing to. Uh, to help on on issues, and so they got very little credit. If uh, if you're going to uh, spend the money, uh, I think it's really appropriate to let people know that uh, government's doing it. And if people start thinking more positively about government uh, and what government's able to accomplish, uh, that that's going to help incumbents uh, uh, at all levels, regardless of party. So I, I I think that's you know this is a pretty significant step. It's a uh, you know. The executive orders, you can argue back and forth how significant they are. Getting this 1.9 trillion package through, this is one of the largest uh, expenditures we've ever seen. Um, and uh, it, it's gonna be significant uh, uh, clearly for uh, for a number of years at all levels. We now have a huge infrastructure proposal that's, going, that's uh, being discussed now. And I, I think I saw or, or heard our Senator Todd Young talking about the Republican um, counterproposal is like, I don't know, 500 billion rather than $2 trillion. Bill, uh, what's in this um, infrastructure proposal? And what about this argument or discussion that uh, not all of it or a a small amount of it is for what people consider traditional infrastructure like roads and bridges compared to other infrastructure? You might call it human infrastructure. Yeah, so, but I guess before I answer, you know, dive into that, I just want to to say, you know, share with folks that uh, you know, I think that uh, President Biden, when he was vice president, right, was sort of, he's now experienced a kind of a deja vu uh, in a lot of, in a lot of folks who were also involved with uh, the Obama administration who have come back. There's, there's a level of deja vu. And I actually was on the transition team for President Obama and we had started out our conversation on what we were going to do. And I was quickly working with the labor secretary designate. And we were talking about what we were going to do in terms of rolling back um, the, our predecessors, uh, what we felt were labor unfriendly, worker non-supporting types of, 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 of initiatives and, and laws and policies. Uh, and then the Great Recession hit. And one of the lessons learned out of that Great Recession, when we when we did put forward the uh, American Reinvestment Recovery Act, was that that our hindsight was that was too small, that was too small. And going into this uh, pandemic, when they were doing the transition, and, and I was all, I was a part of of helping out with some of the policy development, uh, and particularly on the labor side of thing, labor and workforce side of things, the cons- growing consensus was we have to go big. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen echoed that we have to go big, uh, or go bigger, excuse me, than 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 what we did with the with the Great Recession. Partly because of just the swiftness of how the economy was closed down, and then just the broad reaching, it's it's broad reaching um, effects. And then third, what I described earlier, the preconditions that that you had 38 percent of your households in the United States who couldn't. Pay prior to the pandemic, even in the best economies since World War II, couldn't pay a simple bill of $400, uh, unexpected bill. 
So, so it was lessons learned on, on regards to the size of what we need to do and also lessons learned around don't uh, monkey around tr- uh, trying to negotiate with people who don't want to negotiate, who publicly have said to you or said, <laughs> we, we want you to be a one-term president, right? And so this time it was, you know, the house is not smoldering. It's, the house has been on fire, is on fire. And that we and that uh, the administration, Democratic Congress and Senate use the reconciliation uh, approach to to get that one point nine trillion through. Now, in terms of this next step with regards to the to the infrastructure package, as you said, yes, it has traditional uh, sort of bricks and mortar like bridges, highways, uh, but it also has. has has uh, investments in in the infrastructure such as right the uh, information highway, five uh, G I believe, uh, the care economy right, and I'm one that I believe all of those especially in a 21st century economy where you have right fewer manu- manufacturing jobs where where largely it's service based where we are now going to continue to be in an era of pandemics where you have a little more than half of your labor force are women uh, and a large share of them are, have, are, are, are parents and also dads are now much more involved in, ch- in doing, uh, raising children and, and, do, and being at home and doing that non-paid work, right? We live in a very, very different economy. So what infrastructure used to be back in the 1990s or 1980s, or building a highway, building a bridge, Yes, that's still infrastructure, but we now have these new service-based type of, of, uh, of activities that if we don't provide the support, if we don't provide the support, we continue to, we'll continue to have a digital, digital divide where young children who are affected by a pandemic who don't, have, who don't have access to the internet or poor access to the internet. I see with some of my students, my Rutgers students, right, who are challenged with being just as productive. And that's the key word here. It's productivity. It's anything that is in that item that can really talk about is how it helps to improve worker productivity, family productivity, and also that, that because why is that important? Productivity growth is one of the key ingredients to economic growth. And then the second thing that has to also happen that this administration seems to be uh, champion on, particularly around race and gender, is Yes, just because you grow, we've learned over the last decade or so, just because you grow the pie, just because you grow the economic pie, grow national income, it doesn't guarantee that those gains or that growth will be distributed in a way that's not so, I won't say fair, but in a way that matches people's productivity. Like one of the big, uh, big features of this economy over the last 20, 30 years is what we call, it's called the clamshell chart where if you show people's wages and you show worker productivity, worker productivity has been on this upward trend over the last 30 to 40 years, while wages in terms of uh, inflate, adjusted for inflation have, have fallen behind. So there's been this disconnect between what, what, how hard workers are, are, are uh, putting the effort in and what they're bringing home. And so, so, so this package here, this infrastructure package here, does two things. One, it makes investments in productivity. Uh, and yes, they have costs, but they're going to have an economic return and they'll have a social return, right? And then it also does work that tries to counter some of the evidence that uh, one of my friends who was uh, Larry Michelle, who, who ran the Economic Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., he has found evidence that one of the big reasons why we have this disconnect between productivity growth and wage growth is because of work of sort of worker suppression types of policies, whether they be from the government or absence, like raising the minimum wage, or activities done by 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 the private by in the, in the private sector. So, you know, this in, this is an important next step to again restoring prosperity, but not only just general prosperity, but a shared prosperity. Bill, we got a comment that I would just like you to respond to, and um, it's iconic companies such as Microsoft would have never existed or or been founded under the kind of punitive 1970s style capital gains tax rates that Biden wants to bring back. Can you just react to that? Yeah, I would. My one response is I think the uh, the the tax increases in terms of corporate tax increases and 
the, uh, the now there was uh, this talk of uh, of a uh, capital gains tax for wealthier individuals, right? The the increases that they want that they're talking about, the administration's proposing, are not going to take us back to the 1970s. I think it's uh, it could take us back to kind of the Clinton era. Uh, set of set of set of estimates, and and then the other response I'd say too is that many people have depicted this this pandemic recession as a case style recovery, where we're in a recession and now recovery, a case style recovery, or, or kind of a two realities economy, that you have had the wealthy and large corporations, particularly the wealthy. Uh, yes, I admit so many of them have had probably health issues and concerns around the pandemic and have lost loved ones. But for the most part, wealthy families, again, as defined by or, or high income families as defined by this administration, I think four hundred thousand dollars or more, right? They have they have been able to work at home. They have been able to get better health care, uh, access to to vaccines, and so so. You know, this is about shared shared prosperity. is also about shared shared responsibility, uh, and and so so and, and we're not just these tax increases are not just being done sort of wildly or, or without lack of thought. One, they're being used to pay for investments that are that are widely needed that will grow productivity. So you put a dollar in, we get two dollars of economic activity out. Today, we're talking with our guests about uh, President Biden's administration and their first 100 days and what they're going to do, perhaps going to do next. You can uh, send us your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and we're on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I wanted to ask, um, well, all of you, but I'm going to start with Margie about uh, we haven't talked about any negatives to the first 100 days, and it, it seems to me that the one negative that we perhaps are hearing about is what's going on in our southern border. So how big of an issue do you think that's going to be for President Biden as we continue to to go forward? Oh, I think it's going to be a very big issue, and understandably so. Um, presidents, as a lot of scholars of the presidency have found, really have a lot less control over their agenda than we might think. Um, presidents are very often influenced in terms of what they can get accomplished during their term by things that happen from the outside, exogenous effects, the decisions of other countries, um, immigration questions, world economic questions. And uh, this is a problem that is almost inevitable when you're responding to a previous administration that has been uh, extremely tough and cruel with respect to people asking for asylum in this country, changing to an administration that has more positive views of immigration. It's almost inevitable as a result that a lot of prospective immigrants into the United States are going to take this as a cue that this is their time to try to cross the border and come. Um, the Biden administration uh, has had to slow down in terms of what it had hoped to do on immigration. And as a result, uh, a lot of his opponents have jumped on him immediately and said, well, this is no different from President Trump's response or no better than any earlier response. But sometimes I think we all need to take a breath. You know, uh, when there are a whole pile of people crossing the border on Monday, you're probably not going to get a solution on Tuesday. And uh, this is relatively recent, and we need to give the guys some time. Paul? I, I think the, uh, the the issues around immigration have been the main negative. Um, there's uh, there there have been some complaints I, I know from the folks on the left of the party that uh, perhaps he's not moving uh, quickly enough to, uh, to to make some changes. But I, I think they've done a pretty good job actually handling that. Um, you know that 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 could change. Uh, you know, for all the folks that are wondering why haven't we gotten rid of the filibuster yet. Uh, can't we get D.C. as a, as a state soon and uh, do more on gun, con, uh, gun violence prevention? Um, you know, folks are, are, are making those sorts of noises, but I, 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 I think he's been handling it actually fairly well. I, I think, as Margie said, immigration seems to be the, uh, the, the weakest link now. But, uh, 
hey, you're, you're, you, you can't do everything. I, the one other um, area that I think folks might be wondering about is, you know, are we going to be peaking in terms of the number of people vaccinated? How do, you, how do we get, uh, you know, how, how do we convince the, 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 the folks that don't want to get vaccinated? How do we convince them to move forward? Uh, that's going to take a bit of a, uh, some more of a sales effort. Uh, but uh, again, I think they've tried to lay the, the groundwork for that, but that could be one of the issues moving forward if we don't get enough folks vaccinated. One issue I wanted to bring up, and, and I, I guess I'm just throwing it out there to see uh, which of you might want to tackle it first, is what we have done uh, or learned from the insurrection and what's happened going forward. I mean, that happened two weeks before uh, President Biden took office. We had this um, basically a, an attack on the Capitol building. Um, how has President Biden had to respond to that, or has he? Well, that's. Well, yeah. I'll take a. I'll we'll take go, a. Go ahead, Bill. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Just real quickly, too. I would agree. The immigration piece is the is the big big challenge right now, or that that again he can't control. And one of the you know, think my life uh, remembrances when I worked for the Labor Secretary as her uh, chief economist during the Clinton administration, you know, that was the daily, that was the morning struggle, right? You come in, we have our own approach and ideas and our own agenda uh, that we were sort of trying to push and try to implement. But you would always have some wild card issue that, you know, you, you and, and no matter how much kind of Per, uh, predicting or looking into your crystal ball, you did. You would, uh, <laughs> you, you 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 still you still would always miss one here or there. Um, with regards to the January sixth insurrection, I mean, um, you know, the assault on the Capitol, uh, I didn't, I you know, did not know that that was going to be it. But when I saw that or heard about it, then again, watch it and hearing the voices. It just took me back to when he, when the when Trump announced that he was going to run for president, and it reminded me of the old nineteen seventies movie uh, called uh, uh, it was Network with Faye Dunaway and uh, uh, Peter Finch, where Peter Finch is this uh, uh, news anchor, and he it's it's during a time where of malaise and people are unhappy. Uh, and he sort of just generates this chorus of like, I'm, you know, I want you to go to your windows and reopen them up and say, you know, you're mad as hell and you're not going to take it anymore. And that's, 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 that's how I always got to retreat back to that, <laughs> that, that, those scenes in that movie. And that's, and that's where we are. We have a host of, uh, of Americans that uh, have, uh, as I said, felt bullied by globalization and, and globalization, whether that's immigration and trade, bullied by technology, fearful that they're going to lose their jobs uh, or get outsourced uh, due to technology, and then also uh, a nervousness for in, in some communities around the browning of America, right? That uh, like New Jersey, where I'm at, we we've had two two uh, our two senators are men are uh, men of color. We've been doing that for a number of years. Uh, at the state university where I teach at, uh, I probably haven't taught a, a, a white majority class in over a decade, and, and I'm teaching economics. So, so, so I there's a level of I was sensing this this anger, and I spend a lot of time. I watch Fox News, not that I agree with <laughs> with a lot of what's said, uh, but but I watch it to try to understand that that part of America, and and so you know. The, the president again has done, I think, a decent job of trying to lower the temperature, uh, try to do things that will help everybody, right? that, that will help everybody, that will help those in the suburbs, will help those in the in urban areas, will help those right in the central cities. Uh, and, and then also learn a lesson learned from the Great Recession. Do, they are doing a much better job of articulating, this is how these investments, this is how these dollars are impacting you. Uh, on a on a daily on a daily basis, so um, hopefully, uh, well, I mean those those attitudes and concerns and and views are st will still always be there. That uh, hopefully that uh, you know, that that people's economic uh, pocketbooks and purses and their checking accounts and their four hundred one ks will uh, will help them to see that uh, you know we can we can do we can be a unified country. Uh, in, in the near future, or more, or more, or more unified. <laughs> yeah. let, let, let me just jump in briefly. And uh, 
you know, I, I think one of the big issues uh, after the 100 days is, is uh, you know, what is the Justice Department going to do um, in terms of pursuing uh, the folks that were involved in the uh, attack on the Capitol? Uh, what, what sort of uh, efforts might be made uh, with regard to some of the uh, legal um, uh, issues surrounding uh, the, the former president? Um, you know, those, those, those are big issues that are out there. And, and, you know, they've started some things in a way, um, the fact that it, they haven't come to a head yet probably does help uh, uh, the temperature get lowered. But, you know, one of the things that people forget, and, and, and this is particularly true in the Justice Department, but other parts of the, of the government, um, uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland didn't get, um, uh, didn't actually take office till just a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a number of U.S. attorney slots are, are, are being held up. Uh, there was just a vote two days ago on on two of the top people in the Justice Department. Uh, a, a lot of the positions don't weren't filled right away. And uh, part of it is because there, there wasn't really the, uh, the, the smooth presidential transition that we usually see. Um, and um, I, I think there's been some in, intentional moves to try to delay uh, appointments coming in to make it harder for uh, President Biden to, to do as much in the first 100 days that he would have wanted to do. So that's one of the consequences we've got. Not everybody was up there and, uh, and running on January 20th. A lot of the folks uh, uh, had to wait close to the end of the 100 days to even get uh, to get their top uh, team in, in, in the departments. Margie, do you have anything you want to add to that? Oh, yes, I do. Um, I think it's certainly evidence that President Biden has been very disciplined in these first 100 days. We've just come from an administration that was extremely undisciplined in which the president felt the need to have the camera on him all the time, even to the extent of sometimes totally disagreeing with things that his own administration had just committed itself to. Um, president Biden has set his own agenda to as, as great an extent as presidents can in that uh, a lot of Republicans would have liked to have drawn him into fights about symbolic issues, um, whether or not some Dr. Seuss books ought to be published, whether or not cancel culture exists, uh, whether or not the person who lost in 2020, in fact, lost in 2020. Um, these are not productive issues for a president of the United States to get involved in. I can easily envision President Trump having jumped right into these issues, but President Biden basically seemed to have made the determination the matter of prosecuting people who uh, were at least accused of sedition and certainly seemed to have done their best to accomplish it is a matter for the Justice Department and the Justice Department um, as, as slowly constituted as it was, is dealing with it. That makes a lot of sense as far as the presidency is concerned. Yeah, I would agree with what Margie just said wholeheartedly. Um, but the other, I guess, but the other reason I'm jumping in here too is um, along with immigration, I think the other emerging issue that, that the administration is gonna have to uh, deal with, and, it, and it's just, it could be almost like the new third rail um, in, in some, in politics is in, is this the, the gun violence that we're seeing, uh, whether in, irregardless of whether it's, it's, you know, young black men, uh, getting, uh, getting, getting killed. And there's a really influential book written by two Princeton economists, uh, Angus Deaton and Ann Case called, uh, Death of Despair. And they do a really, really good job of showing how there's this, right, there's this crisis around mental health, um, people taking their lives, around uh, gun violence, and then also uh, other, other kinds of addiction, uh, alcoholism leading to deaths associated with the liver, uh, problems with cirrhosis of the liver. And, and really, this, this is, these are going to be the main issues uh, going forward. They're not only public health issues, they're economic health issues uh, that, that we really have to, to uh, put our heads together on. Well, Helmke, as you mentioned before, that's been one of the issues that you've worked a lot on. How did our gun laws change um, under President Trump? The um, it, it, it's interesting. After the uh, Parkland shooting, um, uh, President Trump did uh, convene some folks in the in the cabinet office, and and uh, he actually uh, uh, basically criticized uh, Senators Toomey from Pennsylvania and, and Manchin from West Virginia for not fighting the NRA as much and said that he would go out there and he would fight for more. Um, and then uh, that evening, apparently he had dinner with Wayne LaPierre, the head of the NRA and didn't do anything after that. So it's, uh, 
Um, after the Las Vegas shooting, the, uh, the, the Trump uh, Justice Department, uh, they did change the rules with regard to the so-called bump stocks that uh, helped the Las Vegas shooter convert his uh, semi-automatic and uh, something closer to a fully automatic. So that was a good step, but uh, basically it was, uh, you know, I, I, I had some hopes after his cabinet meeting where he said he would uh, challenge the NRA uh, uh, that he might do something and that Republicans might get on board but that did not happen. So it's, uh, uh, it, it was a lost opportunity. And, and, and now I hope that President, uh, uh, President Biden uh, will help try to bring uh, folks together. This should not be a partisan issue. It's a public safety issue. It's a public health issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe from COVID, we've learned that if we, if we try a, a, a science-based public health response to things, we can, we can make a difference. From your perspective, what are some things that might be able to be done. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of scare that, uh, you know, the, the new president or who, whomever wants to take your guns away. But really, there are some pretty common sense um, legislative ideas about how how guns might not be quite as dangerous in our society. Right. It's uh, and, 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 there, and there's no one policy that's going to stop all, all violence. But if, if, if we required background checks for basically all sales, universal background checks, that could make a difference. If, if we started treating uh, uh, high capa- uh, restricting access to high capacity magazines and maybe started treating uh, uh, some of the semi-automatics in, in either a new category or closer to the way we treat fully auto, full automatics uh, where they're not banned, but they're restricted. Those are steps that can make a difference. Uh, allowing folks to uh, uh, sue uh, uh, gun manufacturers and gun distributors who uh, are intentionally marketing to uh, folks that they know are dangerous would make a difference. Uh, expanding these uh, so-called red flag laws. This is one of the things the president talked about the other day. Uh, to make it easier to say, here's somebody who's uh, showing clear signs of dangerousness. Let's make sure they don't get access to a weapon. If we had a stronger law in Indiana, that might have made a difference uh, with the FedEx shootings last week. So uh, a, a lot of it, though, is, is, is let's, let's stop treating this as a partisan uh, mm-hmm. uh, issue and let's start treating it as, as something that, that we could solve. You know, it is six people get uh, blood clots from uh, the, one of the vaccines and we pause uh, using that vaccine. Eight people are killed at the FedEx building. Did anybody pause gun sales? Did anybody pause any of this uh, easy access to guns? No, we need to start treating uh, gun violence as something that we can take steps uh, not to eliminate, but at least uh, uh, lower the amount of violence and, and tragedy in the country. We are out of time. I want to thank you all for being here with us today. It's been a, a great conversation and I really appreciate it. It's always great to have Marjorie Hershey from the IU Department of Political Science and Paul Helmke from the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. And today it was great to have a new guest join us, Bill Rogers from the Rutgers University Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy. So I want to thank my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, and also for producer Benta Boutier and John Bailey. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.